You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Well, I am really excited actually to be up here. Um, you know, don't get to do this very often, and obviously uh, Matt and Randall uh, shoulder the lion's share of the teaching, but I really have enjoyed a lot the preparation for this. Um, you know, it's not very often, obviously, we're like, as believers, we should be in the Word and, and spending time in the Word, but it's a pretty unique situation where you get to just like really dive into like a short section of Scripture and just really dive in, learn all there is to, you know, know about it, tons of commentaries, listening to sermons. Um, so that process is actually just like really, really fun and really, really rewarding. Um, and I really, I just encourage you, I mean, even in this book of First John, how, how many really just pastoral good things there are in this book that, that John's teaching us. Um, but before we really get really into that scripture that we, that we just read, I like to do, for, for my own practice, I like to kind of look at the structure of a book and kind of zoom out, see what it's all about, and then, and then zoom back in. And I guess, you know, really as I started reading First John and kind of reading the commentaries on it and, and looking at, you know, all the resources for it, and obviously reading the book through, kind of, you know, start to finish a few times. It's a short book. You can do that. Um, I just realized something pretty quickly. And what I realized was that John and I think just totally differently. He's very, very circular in the way that he talks about things. And I am a linear person. You know, I, you know I'm an engineer. This is the way my mind, you know, works. Um, you know, as I read through, I'm understanding all of, like, his individual points and pieces. You know, if you just zoom in on, on a couple of verses, he's making you know, very good arguments um, and encouragements, but as a whole, I was just really struggling to find a thread. Um, I think we've had this experience before, you know, all of us, if, if, you're, if you're a linear thinker, if you're a circular thinker, you know, you're having a conversation with somebody who's, who's on the opposite end as you, as you, and you might be three or four sentences in before you're like, what, what are we even talking about? Like, I'm not quite sure what we're saying. And then you might not even get there by the end of the conversation. You're just using like filler words of, yeah, I agree or whatever, you know. Um, and so that's a little bit of what I feel like in, in reading First John. I'm just like, wait, what are we talking about now? Um, so if I'm honest, I found myself a little frustrated by this letter at times. Uh, I like, you know, as, as like I talked about, as a linear thinker, I like my conversations, my discourse to be, to be structured, to be linear. I like to, you know, think about what we're going to do from the very beginning, even like this sermon prep. I like to kind of lay it all out, like I'm even describing to you now, and then you build it like a, like a stack of Legos. Um, I like you know, like this, I, as I was researching, it's amazing the wormholes you go down when you're, when you're, uh, when you're researching something like this. This is a Lego bridge that the competition was who could build the strongest, you know, Lego bridge. And this was actually a team from, from Oregon who won the competition. And this bridge made out of Legos uh, held over a thousand pounds of weight. So it's really, you know, this is, th- that bridge is the way I like my, my, my books of the Bible to be, <laughs> to be structured. Uh, you know, I, we kind of lean this way. I mean, if you've read Paul, I mean, Paul's very, very linear. You know, if one and two, then three must be true, uh, this kind of thing. John definitely does not write this way. Instead of linear thought, commentaries describe the book of 1 John as repeating circles. Or I like this one image that I read. It was a, it's a sphere. And only occasionally does he come back over the same point. He's kind of all over the place, but he's hitting on these same themes over and over again. Uh, the Bible Project calls... Uh, the book of First John, a poetic sermon. So I, I took this little snip out of one of their graphics, if you've seen their graphics before. Uh, again, not linear, 
not one and two, therefore three. Uh, but it's this, this kind of this daisy pattern of him circling around these main themes, these main ideas. Uh, he uses a lot of repetition, and you know, he uses a lot of hyperbole, and interestingly, he uses a lot of really, really stark contrast. And if you look back through, uh, you know, the, even like the teachings of Jesus, this is the most fascinating thing that, I've, that, I've, that I, I guess didn't realize before diving into this, is that in the book of John, the, the Gospel of John, chapters 13 through, through 17 or 18, Jesus' last teachings from, from, you know, the Last Supper on, Jesus' teachings are, John's actually just going through Jesus' teachings in this book of 1 John. So it's a really interesting thing to dive into, but so rather than, you know, a, a bridge of constructed of Legos, John, I, I was trying to find an image that would work for the book of 1 John, and the one I came up with, or one that came, came to me, was a, one of like a kaleidoscope. So obviously very different purposes in, in, in writing and in different. Uh, you know, the purposes are, or the, the patterns are all recognizable, but the purpose is different. John isn't writing just to communicate facts. He's writing as a pastor to a church in the midst of a really confusing time, and he's trying to encourage, you know, this, this church. He uses these repeated themes, again, like we said, just almost straight out of John 13 through 17. Uh, it's actually really, like I said, amazing to read through these two, these two books side by side and see the things that, that John pulls out of Jesus' own teaching. Some of those themes that he pulls out are, you know, they, they reoccur a bunch of times in 1 John, and first one that, you know, that is multiple, in m- multiple places is this word abide. And I think we talked about this kind of the first week. You know, this is one of the themes of, of the book, abide. Can you think of a time when Jesus talked about abiding? Yeah, obviously, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides on the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. That's John 15. Uh, light and darkness, kind of this imagery of light and darkness. In 1 John, John uses this, you know, quite a bit. Jesus also uses this. All, he talks about light all the time. And not just Jesus talking about light, but even, you know, other people describing Jesus as light. Again, in the book of John, John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. So, like Matt talked about a few weeks back, the light and darkness imagery, straight out of, straight out of the Gospel of John, and, and even Jesus' words himself. Again, more contrast, love and hate. Um, you know, again, straight out of John, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, uh, you also are to love one another, Jesus' words. Another key uh, uh, cycle that, that John goes through is this idea of knowing versus doing. So, you know, knowing the word versus practicing it. Um, something that Jesus talks about as well. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. That's from John 13. So all these themes are just woven throughout the book of 1 John. That's you know, sort of the structure of it, the, you know, the big idea of it. Um, I like to think, again, of this, of this kaleidoscope. If you look at it, like, you know, maybe purple is the theme of abide, and red is the theme of love. And rather than trying to, like, backfit the book of 1 John into being like a Lego structure bridge, like, the purpose of the kaleidoscope is just to let it sit on you. It's just to let it rest on you. Let's hear the words that John has for us in 1 John and just listen to the pastoral message that he's giving us. So it's, you know, the trying to, in my linear mind, trying to, to break apart 1 John and reconstruct it for my own understanding um, is one way. The other way is to just let 
the words kind of wash over us, and that's what we're going to try to do today. So before we jump back into the scripture here, I'm going to pray one more time for us, and then we'll, then we'll get into it. Lord, we just thank you for uh, today, God, and we just pray that um, you would really just open our hearts to hear uh, John's pastoral message to us. I mean, in the midst of a really confusing time in the, in the church, you know, these early, early years uh, where there's lots of, com- you know, competitive teaching um, and, you know, difference of ideas, and where we're at today in the same, in the same kind of sphere of, of, you know, lots of, lots of different teaching, Lord, and, and most of it, you know, not rooted in you. We just pray that we would kind of gear our minds towards hearing your words of encouragement for us, and, uh, and then also your, your warnings through this book as well, God. So we just ask that you be with us. Amen. So maybe you've already picked up on it over the last few weeks, uh, but again, there's all those themes, but there's also cycles within this book as well. And one of the cycles that John has employed is this cycle of encouragement. He encourages the church really strongly, but then he comes back and provides a warning, and sometimes that warning comes with a test. You know, if you say this, then you must walk this way. So there's kind of like a test in there as well. We already saw this cycle play out um, in chapter one. So verses one through four, very beginning of the book, are just straight encouragement. That which we have seen and touched and proclaimed to you. You know, he's straight up encouraging the, the church. Followed by a warning to walk in the light as we are, and not in the darkness. And then, like I mentioned, and then there's a test. This is how we know we are in the light if we love our brother. So again, it's that cycle of strong encouragement, uh, followed by a warning, followed by a test. Um, so one of these encouragement warning cycles has already occurred, kind of queuing up for us today. We're, we're walking through that again. And our passage today begin, begins with quite literally a poem. And so I know that's, it, it's hard to pick up in, in maybe the English language, um, but if you look at your Bible, you'll probably even see that it's italicized or indented. And it's what that's meant to show us is, you know, sometimes that's a reference to the Old Testament or or some other reference in the Bible. In this case, it's a total change in literary style. So as you're reading, you know, through, if your your Bible did this, it's, you know, usually indented or italicized to show that it's just a totally different type type of writing. So let's read again verses 12 through 14. He says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So again, encouragement. This is, you know, these are some really encouraging words. Um, but before we get into just the breaking down or even looking at just the, the encouragement part of it, um, it's just some interesting observations about the poem itself. Poetic structure, I mean, you've probably picked up on it. There's three subjects, little children, young men, and fathers. That's, that cycle is repeated once through. The sentence structure is all the same. Um, you know, he says, uh, he says, I am writing to you, subject, right? I'm writing to you, little children, because this thing is true about you. So the structure is the same and repeated a few times over. Uh, the poetic form is kind of interesting thing. The first three stanzas, he goes, I am writing, present tense. The last three stanzas, he goes, I have written, past tense. It's sort of this like centered kind of, uh, you know, kind of pyramidic structure of the, of the poem. And another thing about just the poetic form that's more or less just interesting 
uses what's called a couplet form. So there's two lines. So uh, I am writing to you, and then because. So there's two lines of these things, and that's repeated throughout. But then in the last, the very last one, I'm writing to you, uh, young men, he uses four lines. Just an interesting observation. Um, so I read probably no fewer than six commentaries that were just focused on this poem, you know, just specifically. And I can just tell you, there's there's very little unified, full agreement on on all of the meanings of of this poem. Uh, one of the one of the the most you know common uh, interpretations of this poem is that you know the the three different groups, like who are these three groups? Children, fathers, young men. I mean, you're reading this, you might be asking, well, which one which one of these things apply to me? Which one am I in this in this you know poem? Uh, again, one of the leading theories out there is that these three groups are actually archetypes, archetypes representing different levels of spiritual maturity. So like spiritual children, you know, spiritually young, and then the spiritually mature fathers, the, you know, the leaders of the church. In fact, some monumental voices in Christian teaching take this viewpoint. I found this sermon uh, by Charles Spurgeon, uh, who preached a sermon on just this poem. And this was a clip, uh, this is a, a little section out of his sermon that I really liked, really thought was good. He said, the child of God who was born but yesterday is not as completely sanctified as he will be. He is, not as, he is not as completely instructed as he will be. He is not as completely conformed to the image of Christ as he will be, but he is as completely pardoned as the full-grown saint. That he now has just passed through the gate of pearl. Did you not hear the, the shout as he entered? Like a fully shocked, or sorry, like a shock of fully corn, fully ripe that comes into season. As a Midwesterner, I love a good corn reference there. Uh, he says, uh, he, I say, was not more truly pardoned than you who but an hour ago believed in Christ for, until the salvation of your soul. The dying thief had not many minutes found mercy, and yet the Lord said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. It is plain, therefore, that he had been perfectly cleansed in a moment. I love that. It's so good and so true that we aren't fully sanctified yet, but we are fully justified. We're fully pardoned. Um, I, I absolutely love that. I think it's absolutely an, an aspect of what John's saying through this poem, but I also think there's kind of a broader pastoral message that he's giving us. I mean, again, like we're trying to, or like I'm trying to do right now, <laughs> break down poetry. It's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit funny. Um, you know, you kind of just have to zoom out and look at it for what it is. I think it's just straight encouragement. I mean, looking at these affirmations, are any of these things untrue about the other group? He talks about, you are forgiven. Is, any, is that untrue about fathers or young men or children? You know, if you're looking at these archetypes for really all of us, you know him who is from the beginning. I mean, we know God. Uh, you have overcome the evil one. All these things. The poem starts by addressing little children. It's kind of an interesting uh, phrase that he uses there. Throughout this letter, John uses this same word to address the church as a whole. Um, the word actually is a Greek word, the technia, which means my child. Not just like a child, it's my child. You know, it's a, it's a very, you know, and you'll see it used as the word little children versus children. Um, and he uses, John uses this word to write, to address the entire church. I mean, he uses it multiple times throughout the book of 1 John. Um, you know, and so then we ask the question, like, is knowing God exclusive to the spiritually mature? Is knowing God exclusive to the fathers? I mean, clearly not. In the same poem, John says that children know the father. So, it, you know, it's, it's, it's saying it both ways. And then likewise, overcoming the evil one, is that exclusive to young men? Clearly not. In 1 John 4, 4, he says, little children, you are from God and you have overcome the spirit, 
uh, you have overcome them, which in this context is from the verse before the spirit of the Antichrist, which I'm glad I do not have to preach on, by the way. Um, for he says, uh, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So here he tells us that little children are from God and, and overcome the evil one. So again, it's not exclusive to literally young men. When you read this poem in the broader context of, what John, of, of the church that John's writing into, uh, I think it helps contextualize it a little bit for us as well. Um, you know, we know that from uh, that this, this church had some teachers that were a part of it that had broken off. We know this from like later on in, in 1 John. Uh, they had gone out from this church or this group of churches and they were writing another teaching that Jesus didn't actually come in the flesh. I mean, we've talked about this a few times. It's like the, the early Gnostics actually called docetism. Was, is, is, it's a wormhole you can go down uh, to, to read about what they actually believed. But as, in some ways, it was a large rationalization. It was they believed that flesh was inherently evil they wanted to, you know, believe in God. So they're like, well, how can God be flesh? We think that flesh is inherently evil. So let's, let's break these two things. Let's say that Jesus just didn't have flesh. That answers the question for us. But then that led down some really slippery slopes, which we'll, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. Um, but yeah, I also found it kind of interesting that, you know, they talk, you know, they, they were teaching that Jesus didn't actually come in the flesh. And you think about who John, the, the author, was. I mean, we know that he was one of the original, you know, we know that he was physically present with Jesus. And so how, how frustrating must that have been to hear other people who didn't, who weren't there, who weren't around Jesus, tell you that Jesus didn't have flesh. And you're like, no, I, I know that he did. I touched, you know, like I touched him, I talked to him. It's kind of the, you know, the beginning of 1 John, that, that which we have seen and heard and laid our hands on. Um, so it's just kind of a funny thing of like, of course he's going to be pushing back at this. Even like theological arguments aside, just knowing that you know who Jesus was and you touched him, there's people saying something else about him just must have been maddening. Uh, so in this context, we're, they're hearing the false teachers uh, who were saying things about Jesus. And obviously the church who's listening to all this, this discourse going back and forth, they must be thinking, who's right? But not only who's right, but like, do I have the right thing? You know, this is, you have to remember, this is before they even have all of the apostles' writings written down in, in the form of what we call the Bible. You know, we have, we have the original apostles' writings that kind of give us this line through, through, you know, all of history. They didn't necessarily have that. They had the apostle themselves, the apostles themselves, which is obviously amazing and a huge thing, but, you know, they didn't have the context of, of all of history. So they have two teachers talking to them, in, in essence, and, they're, and they've got to be sitting there wondering, Who's right? Uh, so one ser sermon I listened to in preparation for this, the pastor summarized the purpose of the letter of 1 John as this. He said this. He said, know this. The life that you have with God the Father is dependent on the apostolic proclamation concerning Jesus Christ. Okay. Sort of some fancy, you know, big city language there. Uh, but what it means is this. We have to keep to the correct teaching of who Jesus was who Jesus actually was, and that's, who, that's the Jesus that the apostles proclaimed. They were there. They know him. The Jesus, the real Jesus that they saw and heard and touched, knowing that Jesus is critical to life with our Father. Isn't it amazing that over 2,000 years, we have the apostles' original writings uh, that tell us who Jesus actually was? 2,000 years of messy people being involved in the story. It's like the game of telephone, like epic game of telephone over 2,000 years. You can only imagine how far we could have deviated from the original thing. Uh, but no, like we have to be tethered in this thing. So left untethered, you can only imagine how far we would stray from the original message. 
It's no wonder that we get false teachings today, but even then they had these false teachings peak, uh, you know, peaking up about who Jesus was from people that, that didn't actually know him. So even in today, we might be asking ourselves the same question with all of the, the confusion about who Jesus was. Is, is Jesus you know, burnt into my grilled cheese sandwich or is Jesus this or is that? There's all these things about who Jesus was. No, the, if we keep to the original apostolic teaching of who Jesus was, this is our encouragement. And here is just John's poem in its purest sense. Zoom, zoom, zoom way out and not break down you know, all of the, the nitty gritty little pieces. He says this to us. He says, I am writing, I am writing, I am writing. I have written, I have written, I have written to you, little children, to you fathers, to you young men, because these things are already true of you. And these are the things that are true of us as well. Your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. You know him who is from the beginning. You have overcome the evil one. You know the father. You know him who is from the beginning. You are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Let's just let that encouragement that John's giving us rest on us. In the midst of all these competing worldviews and doctrines that can, you know, confuse and derail our spiritual lives, and even like the non-core questions of like, well, who's doing church right? Are those guys doing church right? Are we Like there's so much confusion and mire going around. John's message for us and Jesus' message for us is this. Clear all that stuff away. If you believe in me, you have the real thing. That's the message he has for us. And I would love to just leave it there and walk off stage, but John has uh, a lot more for us. He goes, he breaks into this next section, the second section of, of scripture here. And again, this is kind of that cyclical writing thing. He had this big encouragement for us. What's he going to do next? Some warning. Um, you know, here's where, I mean, you can obviously see why people in commentaries talk about John's writing doing this thing, or even that Bible project kind of daisy thing. It's, he's in and out of these same points all the time. So here he warns us not uh, about not loving the world, but rather loving the Father. And he says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So while John is using some different imagery here, he's using the imagery of loving the Father versus loving the world, it's actually pretty much the same repeated point from, from uh, chapter one, where he talks about walking in light or walking in darkness. He's using these same, you know, it's basically the same point, just different imagery. So we have to ask ourselves, well, what does it mean to not love the world? I mean, that's, it's, he basically just says it to us, don't love the world. Well, what does that mean to not love the world? Um, here we're going to lean pretty heavily on, on you know, a sermon from two weeks back that Matt gave about that walking in the light versus walking in darkness thing. But we're going to look at it through the lens of what does it mean to, to, to love the world or what does it mean to love God? So if you remember from that sermon, uh, we looked at a couple of things just straight out of chapter one. Uh, so to walk in the light means that we have fellowship with one another and the cleansing of blood. That's from chapter 1, 5, and 7. We have the confession of sins and forgiveness. We have, and then we have confidence with Jesus as our advocate. And we'll, we'll break each of these down again. Um, you guys all remember these things, right? I mean, you've got them tattooed on your forearm or something. I saw a couple of you guys eyeing that, but actually it wouldn't be that bad of a tattoo. I've seen worse. Um, 
So yeah, let's look at these things again, but from the perspective of not loving the world. The first one, to have fellowship with one another and the cleansing um, with the blood of Christ. And this comes straight out of that DC talk verse. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, again, the imagery that he's using here is loving the world, walking in the darkness, love the world. We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, loving the Father, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, uh, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So again, we have fellowship with one another through the blood. So again, this, this idea of, of what does it mean to, to love the world or, or love the Father. So if the positive thing here in walking in the light or abiding in the Father is fellowship with one another, then the, neg- the negative of that thing must be what? I mean, the pure opposite is just, just removal from community, removal, removal from fellowship. But I don't think isolation is the thing that John's particularly warning us about here. I mean, if you look at his specific wording here, he's actually more concerned about the wrong kind of fellowship. So again, John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not him, not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. So the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, what does this have to do with fellowship? Um, one of the commentaries I read on this passage uh, called these first two temptations the tendency to be captivated by the outward show of things without inquiring into their real value. So he used these examples. Eve's view of the forbidden fruit as being pleasing to the eye, or David's lustful looking after Bathsheba as she bathed, are obvious examples. This sin includes the love of beauty divorced from the love of goodness, or said very plainly, the objectification of people. What could be more anti-fellowship than objectifying people? And it's not just necessarily for sexual purposes, it's, it can also be for selfish ones. In that same list of, of uh, desires, he, when he talks about desires of the flesh or desires of the eyes, he also talks about the pride of life. And this also can be translated as like a braggart in, in what one has or does. So whether this is wealth or social standing or appearance, we're called not to rank people or rank ourselves by these standards. There's a social strata that exists out there, just as it exists in the, in, in the world, um, that ranks wealthy people up here and poor people down here, or whatever, whatever the metric might be. Uh, true fellowship is to see the person aside from these social factors, uh, which they're otherwise ranked. This, means, uh, this is what it means to love the Father rather than loving the world. So, you know, removing ourselves from from the value system that the world has, objectifying people. This is the anti-fellowship kind of thing. So the second thing that we talked about a few weeks back was the confession of sins and forgiveness. Again, John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us for all unrighteousness. For if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. So loving the Father, uh, rather than loving the world, means that we must confess our sin. What does that say about us when we confess our sin? It says that we believe Jesus is who he says he is. By, con- by confessing, we're demonstrating that we really believe. Again, it's that, that, that warning and test kind of, if you believe these things, then you must act a certain way. Loving the world rather than loving the Father means saying that we have no sin. So this is apparently what was happening in the church that John writes to. Some of these leaders of the church, you know, split off, and they were teaching that the body doesn't really matter. 
they were saying that you know, giving in to bodily desire has no consequence because the spirit and body are separate things. They reason that the body is dirty anyway, so just you know, do whatever you want to do, just focus on the spirit. Um, but that's you know, just a rationalization like we talked about. They thought you know, the body might have sin, but that's already contaminated, but my soul is without sin, is, is what they rationalized. So you, know, you could kind of break apart, well, I'm doing all these quote-unquote bad things, but that's not really sin, because that's not my spirit, that's just my body. You can see the, you can see the, the problem with that. John looks at these, this theological gymnastics that these false teachers are peddling, and he says, no, you're lying. Like, you can't break spirit from body. You, you, you are these things. So maybe this plays out a little bit differently for us today. I don't think we're, you know, in general, in general trying to separate out our spiritual you know, body from our, from our fleshly body and, and do all these clever arguments. Our problem today is more about taking moral uprightness and making that our savior rather than Jesus. Um, how many people's first thought, you know, when they heard, and this, this, is my, this is my thing as well, when you heard just that phrase, walking in the light, you know, depending on your upbringing or your, the teaching that you were kind of brought up in, you might hear that walking in the light and think that means, oh, I need to live perfectly. I mean, I don't know if that, if that resonates with anybody else. That's, honestly, that's the subtext of what I hear sometimes just based on, on you know, the way I was, I was uh, you know, the churches and, and teachings that I sat under as a kid. But that's not what John says, and it's not what Jesus says. No, they say, if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself, and the truth is not in you. If we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Loving the world means hiding sin, either by rationalizing it away or by actually hiding it. Loving the Father means confessing sin, because by doing so, we acknowledge that we aren't saving ourselves. We demonstrate that we really believe Jesus is who he says he is. And then the third thing, confidence in Jesus as the advocate. In 1 John uh, 2, that, those first two verses, 1 and 2, he says, My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the world. So loving the Father means listening to the voice of the advocate. And again, like Matt pointed out last time, it's not just intercession, but advocacy. Jesus is stepping over the line uh, of neutrality. He's in our corner. Listening, loving the world means listening to the adversary or the accuser, as we talked about. Um, again, Matt pointed out this, this image in, in Zechariah chapter 3, which is just kind of the perfect image for this. As Joshua stands before God wearing filthy garments, Satan, the accuser, is standing there hurling insults at, at Joshua. And rather than turning on Joshua, the Lord rebukes Satan. The Lord takes iniquity away and clothes Joshua in clean clothes. So here we are. We have this choice. We can either listen to the voice of the advocate, reaffirming that our iniquity has been taken away and paid for, and that we are clothed in clean garments, or we can listen to the accuser, who tells us to objectify others because they're not actually that valuable, who tells us to hide our sin, uh, because it's either just too shameful or that God couldn't forgive those things or that we couldn't forgive each other for those things. So these are the lies that, that he tells us and just throws accusations at us. If we can, you know, we, can, we, have the we have the choice to listen to the advocate or listen to the accuser. Loving the Father um, rather than loving the world means listening to that, choosing to listen to that voice of the advocate. So in closing, 
Let's remember the things that are already true of us from John's poem as we believe his apostolic proclamation, the things that he witnessed and that he saw about Jesus. He says these things about us again. Your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. You know him who is from the beginning. You have overcome the evil one. You know the Father. You know him who is from the beginning. You are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. And with that knowledge, let's walk in the light. Let's love the Father by being in right fellowship with each other, by confessing our sins, and by abiding in Jesus as our advocate.